Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and verses 9 through 31. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through the end of the chapter in verse 31. Let's give our attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, No flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, 
Let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. As we focus our attention upon verse 21. Really, we can begin with verse 20, which helps to give us some context here. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. As we continue our series on Paul's epistle to the Romans, we need to take stock of the fact that we've now hit a transition point. You may recall that when we were back in chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul began to speak of this gospel, this good news, this righteousness of God by which God's people are saved from their sins. And he said that he was not ashamed of this gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Then he proceeds to demonstrate our need, our desperate, urgent need for the righteousness of God. Why do we need this righteousness from God? What about human righteousness? Don't we need that? But he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He proceeds to demonstrate that the Gentiles are in need of God's righteousness. They've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. He demonstrates that the Jews who think to be right with God based upon their religiosity, based upon the fact that they have the law and they hear the law, but he shows they don't do the law. They need God's righteousness as well because of their hypocrisy. The Gentiles blaspheme God and refuse to take the message of His Word seriously. So he shows both sides. The Jews, the Greeks, everyone is under sin and it all comes to a climax in verses 9-20. through He says to the Jews, are you really better than the Gentiles? No. The Gentiles are under God's wrath as are the religious hypocrites among the Jews. We're all sinners by nature, he says. And he illustrates that. We've spent week after week after week imbibing this message of sin and the conviction of sin and the need to recognize our need for Christ. We've seen that there's none righteous, not even one. Nobody understands. Nobody's seeking God. We're pursuing things that are unprofitable. We're not even listening when God speaks. And, and for that reason, there's none who does good. Our mouths are filled with wickedness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our ways and the way of peace we haven't known. And, and there's no fear of God before our eyes. And he 
concludes it in these verses, in verse 19 and 20. He says that we're all guilty. We're all under sin. We all need to be converted. We all need to be regenerated. We all need to, be, uh, to have spiritual heart surgery. The old heart of stone taken out and a new heart of flesh, a new heart of faith placed in our bosom that we may trust in Christ and have salvation. And, and we've been preaching this, we've been reading the passage again and again and again. And so before we proceed further, I just have to ask you, have you believed that message? Because this is the classic passage in the entire Bible that gets the point across that you need a Savior. And what a tragedy it would be if you've been sitting under this sermon series and you've heard these verses read again and again and again. And you've heard them expounded, perhaps in your own mind, ad nauseum. But you haven't actually received the message. You still don't take seriously your need for Christ. There is still no fear of God before your eyes. And you still have no hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. You're still self-satisfied. You're still content in your own condition. And you find no eagerness to seek salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the harvest, as it were, is over. And you are not saved. Think about that in the words of Jeremiah. Think about what it would be if we conclude this section of the epistle to the Romans and you're still not saved. And you're still content in your unbelief, in your apathy, in your cynicism. It's, it's a troubling thought. So let's be very, very attentive to what we're looking at this morning. Now, intuitively, few if any of us struggle to grasp the biblical notion of God's law. We don't find it difficult to grasp, even if we reject it, right? Even if you don't recognize and agree with what Paul is saying here, you don't, I can almost guarantee, you don't find it difficult to understand what he's saying. It's not difficult to grasp. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science, as they say. The, the connection between righteousness and eternal life is one that we intuitively understand. We intuitively understand that there's a connection between righteousness and eternal life, eternal rewards, and a connection between unrighteousness and eternal punishment. You can ask even a child, where do good people go? Heaven. Where do bad people go? Hell. And I don't want to get too much into the, the you know, we could overanalyze those questions. But the basic concept is easy. Even a child can understand it. Righteousness leads to life. Unrighteousness leads to death and punishment. We understand that. Whether you agree with it or not, I can guarantee you don't, you don't struggle to perceive that concept. In addition, the notion of a judgment to come. The notion that there is a higher power, a supreme being, that there is a God, the God of the Bible, who will evaluate the life of every single person. That's not a difficult concept to understand or grasp, is it? Whether you reject Christ or embrace Him, you recognize what that means. You may say, I don't believe in it, but you know the it that you're not believing. You understand it. By nature, we all understand it. We intuitively understand what it means for our lives to be evaluated and judged and 
for there to be a verdict pronounced according to objective moral standards. And even if you reject the Gospel and the Christian worldview altogether, you will find yourself inescapably appealing to these concepts when you find it convenient. You'll use the Christian faith and these principles of God's law as a taxi to take you, or an Uber, I suppose to update the illustration, but you know, to take you where you want to go. You get into the taxi or the Uber or whatever, and then you get out when you reach your destination. You temporarily adopt these principles of moral standards and people being held accountable and universal standards that apply. You, you use that when you need it, and then you discard it. But you do understand it. A final judgment, an evaluation of each person. Righteousness unto life. Unrighteousness unto eternal punishment. And most people understand the concept of this objective moral standard. Most people have a sense of it. We all by nature have a sense of it. Whether we've suppressed that to one degree or another. And when the Christian faith teaches us that there's a unique role of the Scriptures, of the Ten Commandments, of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. When the Bible sets forth the the summary that Jesus gives of the Ten Commandments, love God, love your neighbor, okay, people don't find this difficult to understand. That, that, That you're going to be judged according to the Bible. That moral principles are decided according to the Ten Commandments. That there's a golden rule. People that reject Christ still, in many senses, embrace these types of principles. So, so intuitively, we don't struggle to grasp the biblical notion of God's law. And yet, intuitively, by nature, we could say even from an early age, even from infancy, we gravitate toward various misrepresentations of these principles. Various corruptions of these notions of moral law and divine accountability. And and by doing so, and in, in embracing these corruptions, we end up seeking to coin a counterfeit righteousness of our own. So we understand something of the biblical principle of divine accountability and moral law, but We corrupt it. We misrepresent it. We're gravitating toward the misrepresentations of it that you see throughout the world and throughout every other religion than the one taught in Scripture. And we we replace God's righteousness with a human righteousness of our own. And how do we do that? Well, we chip away at the stone tablets. We, We begin to reform and reshape God's law. For starters, we exchange God's perfect standard for a standard that is by comparison. Judgment by the curve, as they say. There, we, we take what God says, the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We take that glory of God, which Paul says is the standard of righteousness, and we know that God's glory is light in it. There is no darkness. There is no unrighteousness in Him. He made man sinless and perfect if you want to take it as the glorious image of God in man. But the point is, God has a perfect standard. You break one of the commands, James says, you've broken them all. Cursed is everyone who does not continue 
in all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. One sin. One sin is enough to bring judgment. And so there is a perfect standard that God has set up in His Word. A perfect standard of righteousness which which reflects His perfection. And instead we replace it with a judgment by comparison. As Paul addresses in verse 9, are we better than they? This is what the Jews did. Oh, at least we're better than the Gentiles. At least we're better, at least I'm better than her, or she's better than him. And we begin to compare ourselves rather than recognizing that if we've fallen short of the glory of God, it doesn't matter if one serial killer has killed 15 people and another has killed 35 people. Doesn't matter, ultimately. One sin, one sin is enough to violate this perfect standard. But we exchange the perfect for the comparative to make ourselves feel good. In addition, we exchange a God centered standard for a man centered standard. Jesus says the first great commandment, the first and greatest commandment of the law, is loving God with all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. And secondly, loving your neighbor as yourself. But first and foremost, there is what we call the first table of the law. The first four commandments given by God at Mount Sinai. Jesus says, this is first and foremost. This is the first, the primary, the greatest commandment of them all from which all other commands flow. Why did Joseph not commit adultery with Potiphar's wife? Because It would be a sin against Potiphar, yes, but primarily because it would be a sin against God. And so even sins against the last six commandments in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are fundamentally wrong because how can I do this great wickedness against God? When David confesses his sin in Psalm 51, and he says, essentially, I've committed murder, I've committed adultery. But who are these sins primarily and fundamentally against? Against you and you only have I sinned, he says to the Lord. And so even the sins of the second table, even the duties of loving our neighbor as ourselves and and to the extent we violate those duties, it's ultimately a sin against God in in whose image those neighbors are created. But we ignore that. We exchange this God-centered standard for a man-centered standard which reduces to nothing more than the golden rule. If I treat other people the way I want to be treated, then I'm good to go. And and when we divorce the golden rule from the supremacy of God and the holiness of God and the claims that God makes exclusively upon every one of us, when we do that, the golden rule uh, becomes fool's gold. Because we're treating other people the way we want to be treated, but we're ungodly, unbelieving, wicked people, and and we're giving people what they want as ungodly, wicked people, and it really devolves into wickedness. And yet, we pat ourselves on the back because we've redefined the standard. We also exchange a comprehensive standard. God's law is spiritual, Romans 7 says. It's spiritual. It deals with covetousness. The Tenth Commandment deals with our our attitudes, our thoughts, our desires. It deals with what is inward and what is outward. It's comprehensive. 
it governs our entire humanity. But we exchange that comprehensive standard for a merely outward standard. And so again, we don't take the law of God seriously because we apply it only to our outward works. And and essentially, we act as if God has no greater insight than the people around us. We can fool them and make ourselves look better than we are and put something on Instagram or on Facebook to make ourselves look good and, and you know gallivant around the countryside with this outward show. But, oh, God's law is, is not dealing with my heart, with my intentions, with my inward desires and thoughts. Well, we also exchange an outward moral standard. So we've reduced everything to what is outward. We've reduced everything to what is outward. But we're still not content because there are things we do outwardly that are sinful. So we still, we've got some work to do in refashioning the law of God. And so what we do is we exchange an outward moral standard which says, you know, um, outwardly, you need to worship God. Outwardly, you need to keep the Sabbath. Outwardly, you need to stop taking God's name in vain. OMG and so forth. Outwardly, you need to honor and respect your parents and honor and respect authority. Outwardly, you need to stop uh, name-calling and being unreasonable and angry toward other people. Outwardly, you need to stop engaging in immorality and fornication. Outwardly, you need to stop stealing and lying and and so on and so forth. Outwardly, you need to be a moral person. And we recognize that we're not that. We recognize that. And so, we exchange an outward moral standard for an outward religious standard. Many of us do. An outward religious standard. Where instead of outward righteousness, the law of God simply requires us uh, to be religious. To have the right theological views. We can be a complete bear in terms of our interactions with other people. We can, we can be unkind. We can be unloving. We can be impatient. We can be uh, impious and ungodly and ignore the, uh, certain things. But as long as we participate in public worship, as long as we go to church, as long as we have uh, the ceremonies, the rituals, all of these outward classifications, as long as we've got that nailed down, we're good to go, no matter how unkind, immoral, ungodly, or unethical we happen to be in our outward moral lifestyle. Uh, This is, of course, the the approach of the Pharisees. Uh, We've got our religion down, we've got our theological principles, and we've got our theological rituals. In addition, we exchange a standard that is designed to produce self-examination for a standard that breeds self-righteousness and self-vindication. So we tend to emphasize the aspects of God's law or of moral principle that tend to bolster our own case in our conflicts with other people. We tend to emphasize those principles of the Word of God that, that, that vindicate us in our disputes with others. And so the very law of God that ought to be producing conviction, humility, self-examination, the knowledge of sin instead is leveraged to produce self-righteousness, self-vindication, pride, and boasting. 
And yet we can still say, this is the law of God here. Here's what it says. But we're selective and self-serving. And my friends, such is the corrupt, fallen, natural religion to which mankind gravitates. We gravitate to this approach to religion and to morality with its counterfeit human righteousness. My friends, you go down the list of religions in this world, there are elements of these misrepresentations and corruptions all over the place. Whether we're talking about Roman Catholicism, whether we're talking about Islam, you could go through all the different religions of the world to the extent that they recognize something of moral principle, they are corrupted by these very things. This is leading the world to hell. In fact, in many churches that we would say these are true churches, you know, if somebody was baptized in these churches, we would accept the baptism. We would say these are true churches. But many of the people who attend quote-unquote Bible-believing churches, maybe people who attend this church are infected with this type of thinking. And it's, it's leading everyone who is infected with this. It's leading them all to hell. Unless they come to their senses and realize what Paul says. He says, now we know. And he's making the point here. We should know. And deep down perhaps, if we're honest with ourselves reading what the Scripture actually says that he's just quoted, then we do know. But do we know? Do you know? That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you understand that in terms of your acceptance with God, your right standing with God, this is the role of the law. To breed self-examination, conviction, and a hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, God willing, in future sermons, we're going to spend some time understanding the biblical teaching concerning God's law. And we're going to look at some other uses of God's law in the life of the believer, for instance, as, a, as an authoritative guide for Christian living, as uh, the basis of morality and the basis of, of civil government and things like this. So we'll look at that. But in terms of your right standing with God, in terms of your eternal destiny, this is the role and function of God's law. To say you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And that's abundantly clear. And as I said, if that's not clear after all these weeks, it's a fearful situation for you. But Paul says now, but now, there's a contrast. He's pivoting. He's transitioning to what he has been desiring to proclaim throughout the entire epistle up to this point. It becomes the chief substance of his epistle. This is what Paul is excited about. This is what he's not ashamed of. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. But now, says Paul, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now that we've taken the Louisville slugger to human righteousness and battered it and shattered it, it's time to proclaim the righteousness of God. Something new. Something different. A different kind of righteousness than we're used to. A different kind of righteousness than perhaps we've heard about or has been insinuated. 
in our culture or in various religious groups that we've been affiliated with. It's something different. It's not merely this conventional legal righteousness where God rewards good people. Again, that's so easy to understand. There are these good people, God rewards them. It's very simple. But it's not merely that type of legal righteousness. God rewarding those who have obeyed Him in a legal sense. Because we've heard here that that, in fact, is not even possible. It's not new, but it's also not possible. There's none righteous. There's no one who does good. Uh, uh, Apart from the law, he says. This righteousness is apart from the law. Because according to the law, you're never going to climb that stairway to heaven. And, And at the end of the day, the only hope you have of being in right standing with God is something that God has done apart from your obedience to the law. Apart from the law. What does this involve? It involves faith in Jesus. Now, if you kept the law perfectly and you came before God at the judgment, there is a sense in which you could say, reward me on account of my righteousness. Reward me on account of my righteousness. And your confidence would be, yes, in God's promise to give eternal life to those who are perfectly righteous. You, you, it, would be, it would be trusting God, but there would be a sense in which you're putting your trust in the fact that you have done what God said to do. That you have perfectly fulfilled the law. But this is a different kind of righteousness. This is a righteousness that says, no, my faith and trust are in someone else. Jesus. What He has done. And there's an amazing statement that Paul makes here about this righteousness of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word freely means without a cause. It's a very emphatic term. It means without a cause. You're familiar in the Psalms when the words of Christ in the Psalms where He says, they hated me without a cause. Same phrase. Same exact idea. They hated Jesus without a cause. Did Jesus ever give any cause in His thoughts, words, or actions for His enemies to hate Him? Did He ever do anything that was hateful? No. And so, He was hated without a cause. There's not one aspect of His performance that warranted hatred. And that's the same phrase that Paul uses here to describe the righteousness by which the believer is on a good standing with God, is right with God. That righteousness that is declared, that justification, they are justified without a cause. In other words, there's nothing in their performance that warrants that righteousness. It is their faith in Jesus, what He has done. He has purchased it. He has paid the redemption price. Jesus Christ has done that which warrants the believer's right standing with God. But in terms of the believer himself, he or she is justified without any cause in themselves or in their own performance. Without a cause. It's a different kind of righteousness. It's a vicarious, substitutional righteousness. As I said, it's faith in Jesus. It's putting your confidence in something that has happened outside of you 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You look at yourself, the law of God says there's nothing in yourself to put your trust in. There's nothing that you've ever done that has been perfectly righteous. It's not just that you've done some good works and done some bad works. As one great Scottish preacher once said, he said that when he this is in his uh, on his deathbed in his final words, he says he heaps all of his good works and all of his bad works before the cross of Christ to be redeemed from all of them. Why? Because Isaiah 64.6 says, even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God, judged according to His strict justice. When we seek to be right with God by our best works of righteousness, they are filthy. And they are unacceptable to Him. Now, of course, once you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, uh, your sanctified good works are, are a pleasant aroma in the sight of God because Christ has sanctified them. But in yourself, in and of yourself, there's nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to that cross of Christ I cling. It's a vicarious, substitutional righteousness. It's one who has taken your place and it involves a redemption. Salvation is free for you, but it costs Jesus His life. So salvation is free, but Jesus paid for it. Somebody's given you a gift, and it's free, and they give you a gift for your birthday. But they paid for it. That's the idea with salvation. That's the idea here with what Paul calls in Romans chapter 5, a gift of righteousness. Jesus had to purchase it. But it's been given to you. It's vicarious. Your substitute has accomplished what you could not. He has taken your place. He has obeyed God's law in all the fine points. He's obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness. He's also sustained the punishment that all of your sins deserved. If you're a believer, all of His people, all of their sin heaped one on top of the other. If you've sinned once every day of your life, Many of you have tens of thousands of sins. And how many more? Because we've sinned more than once a day. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, heaped all upon each other, trillions, bazillions as they say, of sins heaped upon the Savior on the cross. And my friends, if you are a believer, what it means is that you are part of the body of Christ. That He is your head and you are His members. And when we speak of capital punishment, we speak of someone who's committed a crime and they're you know, off with their head. That's where we get that term. Capital punishment. The head is taken. And now it can refer to any form of, of uh, punishment unto death. But capital punishment. Our head. Our head was punished. And therefore, in Christ... Every member of Christ's body by faith, every member of His elect people has sustained that punishment and it is satisfied in the substitute. It's also an imputed, transferable righteousness. Again, this is so different from those basic concepts of moral law and divine accountability with which we're all familiar. This is an imputed, transferable righteousness. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. It's easy to miss it. 
It's easy to ignore it. But he says that this righteousness, verse 22, is to all and on all who believe. So there are these people that say, well, the righteousness of God is just God's righteousness to reward good people. It's just His righteousness to be righteous and be just. No, no, my friends. This is a righteousness that is to believers. This is a righteousness that is placed upon believers. This is an imputed righteousness. This is a righteousness that is credited to those who put their trust in Christ. This is a righteousness that is transferred, that is placed upon, that is given to all who believe. Chapter 4, verse 3 says it this way, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. That word means imputed, reckoned, credited, transferred. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, this is the scandal of the Gospel. Children, cover your ears. This is going to offend you. Okay, Just kidding, but seriously. This is a scandal to the world. But to him who does not work, the one who doesn't perform the law of God perfectly, the one who doesn't come before God on the basis of their own work, who doesn't labor to be right with God in their own performance, the one who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly. So it's the person who looks at the law as a mirror, sees their ungodliness, comes before God believing on what Jesus has done, and disclaiming and casting away any hope of righteousness in the sight of God based on their own performance. They say, God have mercy on me, the sinner, the ungodly. The one who has not worked the works of righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness. Now what does it mean for his faith to be counted for righteousness? Does it mean that his faith is the righteousness? Well, no, because if your faith was your righteousness, okay, it's not rocket science, your faith is your righteousness, you're in trouble. Because I believe, help my unbelief. Your faith is just as imperfect as your good works. If you think your faith is any stronger than your good works, um, I've got some beachfront property in Nebraska that I'd love to sell you. We all struggle with faith. We all struggle to believe. Even the greatest believer is weak in faith at times. So if your faith is the righteousness that is clothing you and and supposedly going to make you acceptable on Judgment Day, you are going to be clothed immodestly in the presence of God. It's not going to work out well. That's not what this says. The, the, the preposition for means unto. In other words, it means his faith is accounted to him unto righteousness. And Paul makes it clear. Paul interprets what Genesis 15.6 says in the Hebrew. Paul, with great precision as a theologian, interprets and expounds it for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. What's being imputed? Not your faith, righteousness. Not your faith, but righteousness. 
So you're believing unto righteousness and the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Christ is transferred to you. And, and Paul quotes uh, Psalm 51 to make that point. And if you go on in verse 11 toward the end, he says, uh, Abraham's the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So this is not your righteousness. This is what Christ has done, reckoned to you, transferred to you. And this is explicit in chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, which will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam's sin was accounted to us as his descendants, as his posterity. Paul in Romans 5.17 is saying that in the same way, I guess we couldn't call the imputation of Adam's sin as a gift. Um, or you know, It's the kind of gift that your dog gives you in the backyard. It's not a good thing. But we're talking about Jesus Christ giving a gift. Jesus Christ replacing that filthy human righteousness that Paul says is as dung in the sight of God and replacing it with what is perfect. Giving us perfect righteousness. Satisfying the law on our behalf. It is a gift of righteousness. It is given. It is imputed. It is transferred. It is credited from Jesus to His people. Verse 19 of chapter 5, For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made that is constituted righteous. This is a righteousness that's imputed. It's transferred. It's also a righteous righteousness. It's a righteous righteousness. You say, well, that's redundant. Well, maybe it is, but, but it's a just, a righteous righteousness. That's why the Apostle Paul uses such theologically expansive terms to describe it. Verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As I said before, this righteousness, this gift is bought and paid for. This is not God saying, well, we're going to sweep this under the rug. It's not a big deal. Um, I'm a merciful God. Nobody's perfect. It's not that. It's God saying, I'm a merciful God. I'm going to send My Son to endure the hell that you deserve and to accomplish the righteousness that you cannot accomplish because of your own sinfulness. And I will satisfy my own principles of righteousness and justice. And my friends, Jesus Christ satisfied the divine law. And we see also the word propitiation. God willing, we'll spend more time on that in the future, but, but that means to turn away God's wrath. God's wrath, we sang in Psalm 7, burns against the wicked every day. It burns against every one of us outside of Christ every day. If we're in our sins. But the blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God, turns away the wrath of God, and replaces it with favor and delight and pity, propitiation. He procures and obtains the favor, even the pity of God, so that when God sees your sin, as it were, it doesn't provoke His wrath, but it 
stirs up his pity. And he has pity and he heals and he forgives and he cleanses and he sanctifies and he perfects you unto the day of Christ Jesus. Propitiation. Jesus fully satisfied all the handwriting that stood against us. The condemnation. The charge of sin. And my friends, He did it in a way that could only be done by God Himself. This has to be a divine righteousness. It can't just be a great man, a great teacher, a religious guru who dies. No, it has to be a divine Savior who performs a divine righteousness. Why? Because the infinite wrath against you would take an eternity to satisfy. Satan's going to be in hell forever. Why? Because Satan is a finite, limited creature and to endure an infinite wrath of an infinitely holy God will take an eternity and it will never be satisfied. Satan will be in hell. Everyone who follows in his footsteps, every unbeliever, everyone outside of Christ will endure that punishment consciously for the eons of eternity. It will never end because a finite creature cannot endure an infinite punishment. That's why hell is eternal. Jesus drank that cup of infinite wrath in about three hours. Now, His whole life was a life of sorrows. I get it. There's an element there. But essentially, He takes the cup of wrath and He drinks it on the cross in about three hours and says, it is finished. Only an infinite Son of God, only one who is fully God and fully man could endure wrath as man and sustain the endurance of that wrath as God. Only a a righteousness that comes from God. One who is fully divine. This is not the righteousness of man. It is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God that requires that God become man and satisfy the law. And satisfy it in a way that no sinner in hell, no demon in hell ever will. No sinner in hell will ever perfectly keep God's commandments. No sinner in hell will ever exhaust the infinitude of God's wrath. Only Christ, in His obedience unto death on the cross, has satisfied both. So the law of God is not undermined and diluted and kicked to the curb. But Paul says through this righteousness of God, it is established. It is beaming and glowing never having been satisfied in this way and never to be satisfied in this way again. It is also an ancient righteousness. Paul says it's apart from our obedience to the law, our own performance, but it is ancient. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is the same righteousness that the Old Testament had been declaring all along. You've got... Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin. God immediately swoops in. Convicts them of their sin. Gives them faith. Clothes them in the skins of a sacrificial animal. And declares them righteous. You see, this is the same Gospel that has been proclaimed from time immemorial ever since sin came into the world. It's the same Gospel. Moses, the prophets... If you look at uh, even the passage Paul quotes from Genesis 15.6, Abraham 
uh, having uh, believed, and it is credited to him unto righteousness. That's from the law of Moses, book of Genesis. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all that is written in the book of the law to perform these things. That's the law of Moses. Moses wasn't confused about these things. Moses was proclaiming a Savior to come who was pictured in the sacrifices, the Lamb without spot. The prophets as well give even more clear statements concerning this righteousness of God. You can see it especially in what we might call Paul's favorite book of the Bible to quote the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53.11, after describing the sufferings of Christ, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So Jesus accomplishes the work. Jesus finishes the work. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. How are sinners to be saved? It's through the labor of his soul. How are sinners to be saved? By coming to a saving knowledge of what He has accomplished and my righteous servant. There's no one righteous. No, not one. God says there is one who is righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is an advocate for sinners. Who says, come unto Me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Those who labor in their own righteousness and fall short of the glory of God come to Me. And through a saving knowledge of Me, I, the righteous servant, will justify you. I will justify many. That's the teaching of the prophets. Isaiah 54, 17, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from Me. How could it be any more clear? You see the hardness of the human heart to accept the most basic truths of the Gospel. The prophets understood it. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. My dear friends, as the hymn says, naked come to Him for dress. We, we, by nature, are exposed like Adam and Eve. We can try to clothe ourselves with fig leaves of our own devising, or we can be clothed in the perfect garments of righteousness. Through this gift of righteousness, this imputation and creditation of righteousness, so that when we stand before God, we're clothed in Christ. Not only are we clothed in Christ, the Bible says it in such powerful, dynamic ways that He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's clothed upon us, but it's inseparable from us through our union with Him. Oh, it's an ancient righteousness. It's an exclusive righteousness. You're not going to find this righteousness anywhere else. There's only one law and one lawgiver, and He has said that all have fallen short of His law. All have fallen short of His glory. No one will be justified in any other way. No one will be standing there on Judgment Day 
entering into the gates of heaven, right with God, apart from this righteousness of God. Paul makes the point, Jews need to be saved by this righteousness. Gentiles need to be clothed in this righteousness. Verse 30, since there is one God who will justify through faith. One God. There's no other God. There's no other law. There's no other righteousness that meets the standard of the law which that God has revealed. So there's no other option. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's one way. And if there is righteousness in any other way, Paul says in Galatians, then Christ died in vain. My friends, this is an available righteousness. God willing, we have many weeks to, to flesh out more of this, but I want to conclude by saying it's, it's an available righteousness. It is to all who believe. It is on all who believe. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul makes this point, Romans chapter 10. The, the door, the gates of salvation have been flung wide open through the blood of Christ. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You don't need to climb the stairway to heaven. You don't need to fulfill the law of God as a means of somehow doing penance and reconciling yourself to God. Jesus has done the work. He offers it to you. He holds out His hands, it says, even to a rebellious and unwilling people, but He holds out His hands nonetheless. Every day, every time the Gospel is preached, He is saying, come unto Me. This righteousness will be unto you. It will be upon you. It will be inseparable from you. And yet, this offer, this availability is for a limited time. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek the Lord. This could be the last time you hear the Gospel. But to be honest, I think an even more frightening thought is that there could never be a time in your life when you are more interested and open to the Gospel than you are today. Every time you hear it and reject it, and you refuse to believe it and confess it publicly, every time you harden your heart further. And it becomes, humanly speaking, just like with Pharaoh, it becomes more and more hard, more and more difficult. If we can say it more and more impossible, you harden yourself in unbelief. So you could live another 50 years and hear the Gospel another 50,000 times. It doesn't matter. Because it may be the case that today is the day of salvation. And your heart is never more open to hearing the Gospel today than it ever will be throughout the rest of your life. Well, my friends, there's much to think about here. And there's much for us to examine in our own hearts. Have we believed this Gospel? Have we put our trust in Christ in an unqualified and unreserved way? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that with man these things are impossible. But with You, all things are possible. So we pray that You would open hearts 
That where there are hard hearts, that you would break them. That you would shatter them. And that you would heal them through the work of Christ. That we might all here today be able to rejoice that we have peace with God through the shed blood of our Savior. We ask in His name. Amen.